When we last left our hero, our hero really wasn't looking like that much of a hero. David, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, is now a liar and an adulterer and a murderer. And as we turn the pages into 2 Samuel 13, as we round the bend into the final half of the book, we hope, beyond hope, that David will recover, that David will spring back, that he will return to his insightful, authentic, godly, this godly king that we know he can be, but this is not the case. In the aftermath of Uriah's murder, Nathan the prophet speaks to David and says on God's behalf, Behold, I will cause trouble for you to rise up in your own house. I will cause trouble for you to rise up in your own house. And instead of a glorious resolution or a recovery in grace, David descends further into sin and powerlessness as Nathan's prophesied words become true. And David's sin, lust and wrath and murder, they trickle down to his sons, Amnon and Absalom, to the great harm and shame of his daughter, Tamar. Second Samuel 13 is ugly. It is brutal. It is disturbing. Amnon forces himself on his half-sister, Tamar, and then sends her away. Absalom plots for two years and then successfully takes revenge on his half-brother. Tamar disappears from the narrative of Samuel. Absalom is exiled from the royal court, only to return with plans to usurp his father's throne and send David into the wilderness once more running for his life. When we come to brutal, bloody passages of the Bible, we are tempted to skip beyond them, to leave them aside, to run to the cuter, happier parts of the Bible. But we know and confess and believe that these words are written for our instruction. These words are written for our instruction, that God's word in all places and in all times and in all ways is for our correction and rebuke and our training in righteousness. And so therefore, these words demand and deserve our attention today. In the midst of the blood and the shame and the shock and the ugliness, there is, I have to say, a remarkable beauty in this text. Uh, It is the work of the Hebrew authors at its absolute best. Second Samuel 13 is nothing less than a work of art. It's construction, it's seven scenes interlinked together like a chain. They are mapped exactly onto chapters 11 and 12. In both chapter 11 and chapter 13, there is a woman taken advantage of by a man of great power. In both, in both cases, the man in question refuses to leave his bedchamber. In both cases, a man lies dead because of the affair. And in both cases, the woman is sent away. It is never heard from again. Um, those of you familiar with the Bible, uh, 2 Samuel 13 is also mapped on to the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife from Genesis 39. There, a Hebrew man, Joseph, uh, his boss's wife tries to get him to sleep with her. And it's that exact story only written in reverse. And so instead of a powerful woman seeking to bed a, a man, it is a powerful man seeking to bed a woman. And the language of Tamar's protest and Joseph's protest are borrowed from each other. And in fact, Tamar and Joseph are the only two people in the Hebrew Bible who wear what is called a coat of many colors. There's overlap in this. 
the Hebrew language, it's just doing its whole thing. The Hebrew language is guttural, and often you breathe in to say the words. And so a lot of the text uses this breathing in sensation to mimic a man overcome with passion. There are mirrored words and mirrored phrases. And Tamar's speech, as she pleads for her life, it's one of the best constructed speeches in the Old Testament. And uh, the reason I bring all this up is that Richard Baxter, who's a 17th century pastor and theologian, said, study hard. Study hard, for the well is deep, and our brains are shallow. And a careful study of the Bible, even brutal passages like this one, even bloody passages like this one, lead us to the conclusion that at the very least, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, the whole work of Scripture, is, a, is an example of human literary genius at the very least. And at best at best, points to a human and divine partnership in which God is trying to show us the way to wisdom and to life. Which means that even this passage of blood and violence and gore is for us and our salvation. It is not just empty words. It is our very life. Jesus says that even this record of the very worst of human nature tells us something about himself. And it is our job this morning to find what that is. So look with me at 2 Samuel 13, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to kind of read it and give some running commentary as we work our way through. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Of course, it uses the word to her as if there's something to be done to her. Women are not something we do something to. Yes. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. The last time we saw the word crafty that's dangerously was the serpent. The serpent was the craftiest of the animals. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, we had to spring ahead last night. Just kidding. <laughs> Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and Prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare him for food. See David, swing and a miss, sends his daughter into danger. What use is power if not to protect the most vulnerable? But David is now complicit. Because of his own foolishness in chapters 11 and 12, David is now complicit in what's about to happen to his daughter. Verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and she kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and she emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. See, the author slows down the narrative there, uses a lot of verbs. He's equating food with sex. He can't tell us in graphic detail what's about to happen to Tamar. He can tell us this. Amnon said, send out everyone from me. 
So everyone went out from him, and Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes and made him, ate them and brought them into the chambers that, of Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Some translations say it's not done anywhere. See, even, Isra- even pagans don't do what Amnon's trying to do. Do not do this outrageous thing, or do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will withhold me from you. It's a delaying tactic. David's never going to give his daughter to her half-brother for marriage. Tamar is pleading with everything that she can think of to make this stop happening. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than, he, being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And then the tune changes as it always does. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Hating her, he hated her. That's what it says in Hebrew. But she said to him, no, my brother. Amnon said, get up, go. And she said, no, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away. It's greater than the other wrong that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man and said to him, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe, a coat of many colors, with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the servant put her out and bolted the door after her. Can't you hear the lock slide shut? And with it, her fate. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. So thus were the king's daughters of the king dressed. He put her out, bolted the door, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. Two years pass, but don't miss this. When King David heard of all these things, he was angry. He was angry, but he did nothing. He was angry, but he was impotent. He was angry, but he sat on his hands. So two years pass, and during this time, Absalom waits, quietly scheming, devising a plan to avenge his sister's dishonor. In chapter 13, verse 28, Absalom kills Amnon at a royal celebration. In verse 29, the other sons of David flee the scene, assuming that Absalom is instituting a coup. In verse 30, a word comes to David that Absalom has killed Amnon. And in verse 34, Absalom flees to Geshur. The text says in verse 39 that the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom after three years. After three years, now we're five years into the future. Because he had gotten over Amnon's death, the death of his firstborn. And so in chapter 14, verse 23, the general Joab goes and gets Absalom and brings him to the royal court. But look at chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. Joab arose, went to Geshur, brought Absalom to Jerusalem, and 
the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And so Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So in verse 14, in chapter 14, verse 28, now Absalom is back in the house, but he's being iced out. We find out that it's two years Two years of living in the royal palace apart from his father. Two years of attending royal events and having to go as a son of the king. But his father being on the other side of the room and never making eye contact with him and never speaking to him and never noticing his presence. Absalom is home, but he is still banished. Joab went to the king and told him and he summoned Absalom at the very end of chapter 14 and Absalom comes to the king and bows on his face, and then the king kisses Absalom. But by now it's too late. David's kiss of Absalom, of his son, this kiss, his welcome, this pardon, it's robotic. It's unfeeling. When it comes to David's pardon of Absalom, the best word to describe it is impersonal. It's a judicial act. It's a bureaucratic matter, of course. It is not a fatherly embrace. He lets Absalom return to his own city, provides him a place to live, but does not greet him by name, never welcomes him into his presence. And so this banished son, next chapter, will seek to overrule his passive and impotent father. And when we read this text, listen, we are struck by its gruesomeness. We are struck by the violence. We are struck by the bloodshed. I mean, Amnon's request of his sister is boorish and uncouth, and sleazy, and smutty. This is the worst of human nature on display. But even more striking than just the evil within this text, even more striking is David's inactivity. And even more striking than David's inactivity is God's utter silence. God's utter silence. And it's those two things, God's silence and David's inactivity that I want to reflect on in our moments together. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, in the incident between Amnon and Tamar, God's name is neither mentioned, nor does God speak. It's godless. In chapter 14, God's name is invoked, but God is given no dialogue to speak. God remains silent. And in the midst of the deceit and the intrigue and the murder and the gruesome sexual violence... God's absence, it's noticeable, it's terrifying, and it causes us to ask, it causes us to ask with every sexual abuse survivor and sexual violence survivor, it it causes us to ask, where was God when I needed him? Where was God when Tamar was dragged into her brother's bed? And from a 20,000 foot view, a, a, a cosmic view of what's going on in the world, It's important to note that God's absence and silence and withdrawal in this passage isn't so much God's withdrawal or silence, it's ours. 2 Samuel 13 and 14 are a long reflection of life outside the garden. When our first parents chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, when they forsook the way of life, they withdrew from the presence of God. They were sent into exile. And what follows is violence. Read the early chapters of Genesis. One and two, everything is great. Three, it falls. Four, there is murder. Yes, please. 
This is a reflection on life outside the garden. The absence in the text isn't so much God's, it's ours. This is the natural consequence of what happens when human beings decide to be the the controllers of their destiny and their own fate. We inevitably, grievously damage one another. And of course, I know that's little comfort to a victim of sexual violence. And by the way, I'm not even talking statistically. There are men and women in our congregation, in our spiritual family, who have been damaged by sexual violence. Thanks, honey. And so theology aside and big picture of what God's doing in the Bible aside, the question remains, where was God when I got hurt? The Bible doesn't offer any neat packaged answers to this question. It simply offers responses. And this morning I want to offer you three of them. And and the first is this. The very fact that the Bible speaks about sexual violence in more than one place, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Judges, elsewhere, the very fact that the Bible speaks to sexual violence is God's way of indicating to us that this kind of brokenness matters to him. Those people, those men and women who walk the road of Tamar often find themselves speechless, and so God decides to speak first. By putting passages like this in Scripture, it is God's way of saying, your story, your woundedness, your brokenness, the violence that was done to you matters to me. How can we not preach on this? How can we not talk about this? If you don't want to talk about real life in church, go somewhere else. But as for us, we will look at this text, which is for us and our salvation, and grapple with the hard questions that we all face And notice a God who speaks about them first. This is God's way of saying that when you come to him with stories of sexual violence, you will be heard. You will be heard when it's something that is so hard to speak out loud. This is your pastor's way of saying, when you open up about sexual violence, you will be heard. The second response that I have to offer, and I admit that it's not a very good one, very few of these are, But the second response is that this is not the end of the story. And we need to be very careful to uh, summarize our whole story in the middle of it instead of living with the end, living into the end. Here's what I mean by that. See, Tamar goes away and disappears from the text. And you think she is forgotten, but she's not forgotten by her brother Absalom, who, when he is given a daughter, names his daughter Tamar because he says that the text says he saw that she was very beautiful. Absalom does not look at his sister and see what happened to her. He does not look at his sister and see her woundedness. Absalom looks at his sister and sees her beauty. The story isn't over because as as the story goes on, David was brought to account for his impotence that left the vulnerable exposed. And we trust that in the end of all things, God will judge the living and the dead that he will not let the guilty go unpunished, that even if the consequences for that violence, that that perpetrator escapes the consequences for a while, in the end of all things, that that violence and that violator will get their reward. And it will not be a cupcake and a good job sticker. The trick to walking with Jesus is living as if the end were already true in the present. 
If the end of the story, when God, who is just and righteous, who will judge the living and the dead and bring about this to rights, is if that's true even now. We cannot live in the middle of our story and assume that the middle of our story is the whole story. We need to live in the middle of our story as if the end of the story had already happened. And the third thing I would say for those of you whose foreheads are marked with ash, like Tamar, Isaiah says that God brings beauty for ashes. And in the end of all things, you will meet a God who loves you, who will restore you into wholeness, and who scripture says will wipe away every tear from your eye. God is capable of even now restoring and renewing and healing even the deepest brokenness inside of you. God's silence, David's inactivity. Reading 2 Samuel 13 and 14, it makes, you forget, it makes you feel like somebody forgot to tell David that this story was about him. It's like uh, some assistant forgot to bring David his script and slide it under the door of his trailer, and so David stayed inside the whole time and didn't know it was about him. David, who to this point has driven the action, has been a leader, has set the course of events with integrity and righteousness. Psalm 78 says of David, with integrity of heart and, and, and skilled hands, he led them. And now we come to chapter 13 and 14. Where's the heart, David? Where's the skill? Now David is tossed to and fro. He's chasing the action, pushed along by it instead of leading it. Here's the thing about David's life is that sin feeds on sin. Sin feeds on sin. It grows. It grows in the human soul. It grows in the community of God's people like cancer. It, it expands. It metastasizes. But unlike cancer, it's also contagious. So David's sin with Uriah and Bathsheba not only dulls his spiritual central nervous system to totally miss out on the fact that his daughter is in danger, to totally become impotent, to totally become powerless, to sit on his hands, to be angry but sit there, in the words of my grandmother, like a bump on a log, but it also trickles down to Amnon. It trickles down to Absalom and wounds the innocent. The rape of Tamar feeds the murder of Amnon which feeds the hard-heartedness of David. And Absalom responds to Amnon's sin by sinning, and now David responds to Absalom's sin by sinning. And Absalom got rid of Amnon by murder, and David gets rid of Absalom by shunning him. And David loses his son Amnon because of the sin of Absalom. And as this passage spins out in violence and darkness, what we can't miss is that David's mistreatment of Absalom and the passivity with which he is expressing and his inactivity, that is his only activity in this text, This is his third great sin, and it is the sin from which David never recovers. David kind of can bounce back from the Bathsheba thing. He can bounce back from the Uriah thing. Because Nathan goes to him and says, the Lord has put away your sin, and so David is restored to God. But something happens here that David never recovers from. So that, spoiler alert, by the time we get to the end of the book, David can't even get out of bed. He is a frail, weak, powerless old man who's a shadow of himself, and that began right here. Began right here. See, what we forget is that sin has consequences. And while God is quick to forgive sin, 
while God is quick to unleash us from the chains of sin, there will be times that God does not protect us from the consequences of our sin any longer. What I'm here to tell you today is what we see in David's life is that at this moment, God stops protecting David from the consequences of his sin. And what I want to offer you this morning is both a challenge and invitation, a challenge to say that if you are in an ongoing pattern of sin, the clock might be running out in which God is protecting you from that sin's consequences. The clock might be running out. Look with me, if you have your Bible, at Romans chapter 1. We're going to jump around for a minute, okay? Romans 1, Paul's introducing a concept of sin. And he says this in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up, or gave them over, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's what David did. He exchanged the truth about God for a lie. He served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. This is a passage about sin and human brokenness and how continued resistance to God's conviction in your life, managing a sin in your life and not mortifying it, meaning letting it kind of sit there but not putting it to death. Run, we run the risk of God handing us over to that sin. Here's what I mean by that. A pervert doesn't become a pervert overnight. But through a series of conscious and dug in and ingrained decisions, they become a person that is unrecognizable. When I was in grad school at Wheaton, I had a professor who uh, had his master's in child development and his doctorate work was in childhood development and childhood psychology. He taught courses on human development uh, and children's ministry. And uh, he always kind of had this nutty professor, super disheveled look. But one day he comes to class an hour and a half late and ends the class an hour early. It was a four-hour block class. He was all over the place and something was going on and we couldn't figure it out. And then later that night he was arrested for child pornography after spending decades in schools, doing this as his life's work, that did not happen overnight. But through a series of small decisions, and this man was a Christian man, of resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he became a shadow of himself. And it doesn't need to be a big, nasty, like, heavy-duty sin for the same to be true of greed, of control, of anger, of apathy toward the things of God. See, what happens is, is, is we let this sin kind of nag because it's an easy path to take. And God protects us from the consequences for that for a time. And I'm just here to throw out today that today is the day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord while he may be found because the protection from the consequences will not last forever. What that does not mean, by the way, is that God will revoke his affection for you or his love for you. I'm not talking about losing your salvation today. I'm talking about that God in his grace will protect us from the consequences of our sin for a time, but he won't do that forever because he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And if there is a pattern of sin in your life that is going unconfessed, 
if you are managing the behavior and not even starting to tackle the desire, we are not walking in the authority and the victory that Jesus died for us to have, number one. And number two, we're just managing and toying with. My invitation, my challenge to you today is to confess the pattern of sin. And listen, I understand. I Hear me. Some of our sin patterns are rooted in a brokenness or a wound. There's some root in our heart that's dug down into bad soil. And so the culture of our church, and Steph said to this to me this week, the culture of our church is this. It's okay if you're broken, just make sure you're dealing with it. Are we in counseling? Do we have accountability partners? Are we participating in circles? Are we studying? Are we like spending time with Jesus daily? Or do we occasionally have a waft of conviction? Think about it for a second and move on. And the time is running out. The time could be running out. And I'm not talking about him revoking his affection or his love. I'm just saying that he's been holding the consequences back out of grace and mercy, but that might not keep happening. But look with me at, we're going to look at two other passages. First John, which is in the way back of your Bible. So what do we do? If you're feeling conviction, if you want to treat sin as an emergency, I mean, I had a moment of conviction this week. And I confess my sin. I had a moment. So this is very real. I'm not just making it up. First John, if you were raised in church, don't let the Sunday school block this out, okay? If we say we have no sin, this is verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Jump back to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 and verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day And night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's just what I want to end with today. And we're going to go to a table that reminds us that all of this is true. What I want to tell you today is that the spilled blood of Amnon could not cover for the sin against Tamar. Only the spilled blood of Jesus can do that. Only the spilled blood of Jesus can free you from your sin. Only the spilled blood of Jesus protects you from the consequences of your sin. Only the spilled blood of Jesus assures you pardon this morning when you go to God and confess your sin. And so Steph's going to lead a response time. Joey is going to lead response time. And uh, so I'm going to pray. And then, uh, cool. Is God doing something? Okay, cool. I'm excited. God, we um, come to you today so glad that we can call on you as Father.
that we have access through the blood of Jesus to your presence. And we know our sin. We know that we don't take it seriously enough. And we thank you for the ways that you have been protecting us from its consequences. But we know that this, that the management and the toying and the nibbling around the edges is not really getting to its root and that we are still living in a prison of our own making. And so today, through the power of confession, Lord Jesus, and through prayer, may we be healed in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.